Hi, this is Doug Beecham. Thank you for joining me as we continue um, our eighth podcast of our study of Hebrews. Uh, if you've not had a chance to catch up, I uh, hope you'll take a few minutes and catch up on some of these. We are in Hebrews chapter 4, and I wanted to take a look at verses 3 through 11 as part of this podcast. Uh, verses 3 through 11 reach back to Psalm 95, and they go back to Genesis 2 verses 2 and 3, and the completion of creation. The idea of today, that idea today, that language is used, that word is used. And uh, I closed the last podcast talking about that. This idea of today continued to be a theme of this pastor who's, who's, who's sharing with his flock uh, in this letter we call Hebrews. Uh, he's calling his congregation to believe the word that's been proclaimed, actually, from the beginning. The failure to believe the word leads, and you see it in verse 11, leads to disobedience. And this is an interesting use of the word disobedience. There are a couple of different words for to disobey or disobedience in the Greek New Testament. Uh, this particular word comes from the word apatheia. Uh, it means to be obstinate. It's an intentional hardening of the heart whereby the word cannot penetrate the heart and bring genuine repentance and transformation. Uh, did you notice again this hardening themes? Dude, today do not harden your heart as in the day of the rebellion that goes back to Kadesh Barnea, Numbers 13 and 14. You know, when you think about this, it, it almost makes you wonder, is there a limitation to the power of the word of God? The Bible tells us God's word will not return empty. And Hebrews 4, 3 through 11 can almost lead you to the conclusion that an obstinate heart seems able to stop the word. But keep in mind, it's not that the word failed. It's that we as humans can reject the word. God's given us this freedom. The word never fails. The word will not even return back to God empty because even somehow in God's mysterious grace and, and the working of his will, even the hardening of our hearts, such as he did with Pharaoh uh, in, in the book of Exodus, even the hardening of our heart, God can use for his purposes. It's the human will, though, that rejects the word. It's not the word that fails, but it's the person who rejects the word. We are the ones who enter into a sphere of loss and failure. This is why the pastor turns to verses that actually many of us have quoted in our preaching, very, very important verses. In verses 12, uh, verses, uh, uh, chapter 12, verses, uh, uh, sorry, Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is any creature that's not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is a powerful passage. Uh, it's the reality of the power of the word. Uh, the pastor here takes the word. He takes this past the idea solely of the written word, the Bible, which we do believe is the word of God. But he actually takes it and, and says that the Bible as the word points, gives testimony to the living word, to the eternal Logos, who John 1 tells us is none other 
than Jesus, the eternal Son of God. The connection of the word with Jesus, the divine logos, becomes even sharper as we, as we reflect on uh, verses 14 uh, uh, through, through 16, thinking about who Jesus is as the high priest. Uh, the, I, I wanna, I, before I go to that, I want to go back for just a moment with you. And let's, let's live for a moment. Let's just, let's just sort of camp out for a moment in, in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Think about that the Logos of God, this is Jesus, is manifested through the written word. But the written word is the testimony of that living word. So when, when, the next time when you're reading and quoting Hebrews 4, 12, think about that the word of God is actually Jesus himself. He is the one and I'm going to use the New King James uh, translation here. He is the one who is living and powerful. To be powerful means he, he is effective. He is sharper than any two-edged sword. He can cut through. That's what piercing means. He cuts through and can divide the soul and the spirit. Sometimes we struggle to discern the difference between our soul and between our spirit. Uh, it, it's hard for us to reflect upon that. But Jesus can do that. He does it through his presence, through his word. He cuts through the joints and the marrow. This is more than just thinking about our own physical bodies. This is about the body. This is imagery of the body of Christ. Jesus is able to cut to the chase, so to speak, cut to the quick of the joints and the marrow of his own body. And he's a discerner of the thoughts and intention of, of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but everything is uncovered. That's what naked means. It's an uncovered, and it's open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus is looking. He's not looking to judge us. He's not looking to condemn us. He's looking to anoint us that we live lives, as Paul puts it, that are worthy of the calling that he's given to us because at the end of the day, it's about his name. This is consistent with what you read in, in the Old Testament where God acts out of jealousy for his own name. You can find that referenced in Torah. You particularly find it in Ezekiel, for instance, that God will act out of jealousy for his own name. This is what's going on here. Jesus is at work, at work in his body, us, so that his name will be glorified in the earth. This connection of the word with Jesus, the divine logos, becomes even sharper in the next few verses, verses 14 through 16, as the pastor here reintroduces Jesus as the high priest. Now, this connection goes back to Hebrews 2.17 where Jesus is first identified as a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus there, Jesus in that passage, Jesus' exposure to suffering and temptation revealed that he was truly man, and thus, as Hebrews puts it in 2.18, able to aid those who were tempted. Jesus' faithfulness as high priest was emphasized in Hebrews 3.11. At the conclusion of Hebrews 4, the high priest's identification occurs again in relation to our weaknesses. Jesus has passed through the heavens, as Hebrews 4.14 tells us. That is, he's paid the price on the cross. He's conquered death through the resurrection. 
He is a, He has ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's fulfilled everything that he was sent to do as the Son of God, fulfilling everything that was given as a type in the law of Moses and in the history of Israel. And he is there making intercession for you and me. As high priest, Jesus, though, is more than a man who understands our weaknesses. He is the Holy Son of God who was sinless. Even as he encountered the emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical realities of temptation, This is why Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. I can't tell you how absolutely encouraging that is. You have to realize that in his humanity, he was truly God, he was truly man. In his humanity, he fully experienced every temptation that you and I face that's ever been faced on this planet, he experienced it himself, and he overcame it. He overcame it as the sinless Son of God. Now, the good news for you and me is that the psychological or or emotional or spiritual awareness that I'm being tempted is not a sin in itself. In fact, it's actually an, uh, an act of mercy. The fact that I am aware that something or someone tempts me. And, and for all of us, it, there's some commonality, but there are also unique differences in all of our lives. And the, the awareness that I am being tempted is actually a sign of grace where, where we can run to the throne of grace. And we can say, this can be overcome, not by my own strength. I'm too weak. If I do it in my own strength, I've failed every time. But Jesus has overcome, and I want to be a partaker of what it is to live in his grace. Jesus understands me. Jesus does not condemn me when I'm aware that I'm being tempted. Instead, Jesus comes and knocks on the door of my heart and says, I'm standing with you. I know what you're going through. That, you know, a lot of, a lot of Christians get confused here. And, and we think that because we're tempted, we've sinned and, and we're, we've fallen away. No, the sin doesn't occur. And James, James 1 talks in some detail about this. The sin doesn't occur until that remains in our thinking and we begin to act upon it. The awareness of the temptation becomes a, is actually a sign of grace. And, and, and it's a call for us to flee for help, to run for help. Flee from the devil, that, that roaring lion who wants to destroy you, and, and to become conscious of being tempted, whether it's a temptation spiritually of our pride or our arrogance or, or whatever it may be, whether it's a physical temptation of theft or some level of immorality. We are called to realize Jesus has been right there and is right there with us now. Well, we're going to come back to some of this in the the next session. Thanks for joining me. God bless you, and I do pray you'll continue. Continue to read Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue to move through this chapter. God bless you.